This podcast is brought to you by Brilliance, a marketing and design studio based in Washington, D.C., where their team of designers, strategists, and human engagement experts build brilliant brands, campaigns, and revenue strategies. Contact them at brilliance.co. That's B-R-L-L-N-T dot C-O. Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here on WERA 96.7 FM. We're bringing you great conversations with leading innovators and entrepreneurs. And today I'm speaking with Justin and Tony Pillay. He is the CEO and founder of Wirewheel. They're a cloud-based data privacy and protection platform that helps companies manage compliance with global privacy regulations such as the GDPR and CCPA. Justin is the former acting undersecretary at the U.S. Department of Commerce under Secretary Penny Pritzker and previously worked as a partner with Arnold & Porter representing private equity, M&A, corporate restructuring, and commerce and bankruptcy litigations. He was also the lead negotiator on the EU-U.S. Privacy Shield. Thanks for being here today, Justin. George, thanks so much for having me. Now, you've got a great strong background focused on privacy and security, obviously. Privacy is now an increasingly a key issue for many customers. Um, so where did the idea for Wirewheel come from, and why did you feel compelled to build this platform? Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here, and uh, we've really loved starting Wirewheel in this community, I can tell you, for a whole bunch of reasons, and it's been very supportive. Um But in terms of how we started the company, I was very lucky. uh, During the Obama administration, I had two really interesting roles. The first was for the last four years, I served as one of the lead U.S. negotiators with Europe on data privacy issues. And during that time, there was a lot of uh, issues that came up not only in Europe but around the world as a result of the Snowden disclosures. You remember those uh, where uh, there had been disclosures around some of the collection from the U.S. intelligence community. So on one hand, I was negotiating privacy uh, involving GDPR and the EU-U.S. privacy shield and safe harbor before that and doing similar things in other parts of the world, including in India. And I was then uh, later in charge of the Economic and Statistics Administration, which is the part of the government that includes the Census Bureau. But the White House and Secretary Pritzker were really focused on an amazing thing. How do you take government data, use it responsibly, and use it to solve public problems? And there are all kinds of incredible things you can do, uh, including thinking about how, say, folks who had just been diagnosed with cancer – how you could bring data for them to understand their particular position and what was going to happen next. Really, really neat things. And that role involved looking at how we could take government data, move it out of super old systems into the cloud using more distributed kind of architecture. And so on one hand, I was learning about how companies all over the world are using cloud infrastructure, new data systems, and how data is really moving. At the same time, I was watching how uh, privacy regulations and the focus on privacy as a human right was spreading everywhere. And I really thought there was an opportunity to bring those two things together and bring some technology that might help not only large companies, but small and growing companies 
uh, do the right thing with personal information. And that's that's really the mission behind Wirewheel. So it sounds like it was born out of this idea of, you know, being with the government IT modernization. Talk to me about, you know, the idea behind it. Was it something that you envisioned where you wanted to create kind of an easy process for people that were working on these issues? Or where did it come from? The, the first uh, thing that really motivated me was that I really think uh, human human rights and depends on privacy and vice versa. That people all over the world don't really know what's happening to their data. And when you're doing business with somebody, you don't really know what you're giving them. You don't know what you're where it's going, and you don't know who it's being shared with. So that was one fundamental thing. And I, I came out of my background not only doing corporate law, as you mentioned, but I used to do a lot of uh, pro bono work for folks who couldn't afford lawyers. And it was fundamentally around privacy and Fourth Amendment. You know, U.S. is the country of the Fourth Amendment. We, we've been in a leader of privacy for the, our entire republic. So that was one side of it. The second side of it was you know, a lot of companies that I saw when I was in the government are trying to do the right thing. They're, they, they have CEOs and CFOs and CTOs who know that trust is critical for them to be able to go and conquer the world, that their customers have to trust them. And they often don't know what they have to do or how they can do it reasonably. How can you show your customers that you're being a really great, trustworthy person with their data? And I, when I started to learn about the infrastructure that companies are buying anyway and how there's cloud infrastructure, our team, and I found it with an incredible technical team, but our team really started to come together around ways that you can bring that technology and actually focus it to build trust. And it was those two things fundamentally that people need to be able to control and understand where their data is going. And that companies that are trying to do the right thing need ways to do it. And that's really, again, what we've been focused on at Wirewheel. So you just spoke about your team, and you have really have a team of heavy hitters here, uh, notably Ed Peters, who is the CTO at Opower before he came on with uh, Wirewheel, uh, Amol Despond, who is a renowned big data researcher at UMD, and Chris Gettner, who's a former rocket scientist at NASA. How did you go about building your team? Uh, I, first of all, you're right. I mean, we can't do it. Uh, without the talent we have. And that was one of the things I was mentioning. You know, D.C. is a phenomenal place for talent. It really is. You have technical leaders. You have policy leaders. You just have smart people. It's a phenomenal community. And with the educational institutions and sort of the infrastructure between here, you know, Baltimore and, and Richmond, as you know, you've seen some amazing companies. But you're right, Ed, who's been a public company CTO at a phenomenal place like Opower, and by the way, the Opower community here in D.C. just is tremendous. That entire team is just phenomenal. Um, and and uh, and Ed and uh, Chris and Amal and others, our whole team. And I think part of it is you have to have a mission and a vision that people get. And I think our mission is and the vision of where we want to go in terms of ultimately putting people back in control of their data is something that almost everybody gets in a sentence. Um, I think our team could see as it was coming together that we had the building blocks of what you need to take this on. You know, you need the ability to understand the law and the vision and what people's needs are here. But in the technical world, there's application development, there's big data, there's machine learning, there's security. I, you know, I didn't even mention, like, for example, Scott Handler, who's our head of security. 
He was teaching cybersecurity at West Point. He's a lieutenant colonel until very recently. And it's just an incredible talent in that area. So if you come at it from all of those perspectives, um, I think the team kind of attracted each other uh, when we were focused on what the mission and vision was. And I think all of us wanted to stay and build a company in this local area. And I, I think those two things have been what, what attracted each other. And we're, we're quite focused on the values of the company. You know, um, what what are the things that you want to build together? And that's that's another thing that I think we've tried to take seriously. And it's worked quite a bit. We've had incredible folks joining us in the last couple of months. Fantastic. Now, you closed a $10 million Series A round uh, back, was it September of this year? Yes, exactly. Okay. The funding was led by NEA and uh, PSP Partners. Again, that's Penny Pritzker's funding organization. You had a total, total capital of $13 million. Can you just talk to me about the potential market opportunity for RegTech and what the global data privacy space is going to look like in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. So privacy to me is the way cybersecurity looked a decade ago. We're at the beginning of this because, uh, you know, GDPR has been an incredible catalyst for us because just you had to be compliant if you were doing business in Europe. But now California has passed its law and you can already see a movement towards either more state laws or a national law, given all you've seen in the press around some of the big data privacy problems that huge companies have been having. So we have there's various estimates of this. Um, there are really credible estimates that show um, spending just on data privacy products and services growing to around six from around sixty billion to maybe around 120 or above in the next five years. That's just on the reg tech side. Mm -hmm. But of course, one of the critical parts of privacy is enabling any person to get their data back and to be in control of it. And that brings this entire area into the personal data market. You know, should a person, when they give the data to a company, lose control of it and lose the monetary value around it? Or are you the one that ultimately gets to decide who buys your data and at what price? And the estimates of the size of that market are like in the five to six hundred billion up because the value of personal data is huge. So um, I think the reg tech side is just enormous and it's going to grow over the next five years. But the vision of actually putting people back in control of their data and being able to decide what to do with it is where I really want to go. Do you ever think there'll be a point where we'll have access and control of our data and actually start to get paid for it? I do. Really? I do. I, okay. do. I think total control over your data is going to be hard and I'll, and for a couple of reasons. But the, you know, the path that GDPR went down, and you can see the GDPR model right now is moving around the world. That's, by the way, one of the reasons that having California take a position and having the U.S. government start thinking about that will be important. Because if the U.S. does nothing, then what is likely to happen is that GDPR is just going to spread around the world or some model like it. And you really do want U.S. principles to be mixed in that, right? You want the U.S. to be leading in the development of an international law like that. Um, but I think the reason I say I think it's going to move towards that is when you see everywhere that privacy is becoming a fundamental right. And because control and being able to get your data back demand deletion of your data and move your data around, data portability is part of almost every law being passed. Um, 
I think it's going to take a while, but there will be a time where you will be able to ask for your data back from any company, be able to decide that that data gets to go to the successor company in a way that they can use it. And you'll be able to actually charge or decide who gets to buy your data at some point. And the most valuable data, George, in a funny way, people often think of it as the data you directly provide a company, you know, like your name, address, phone number, social security number. The part that becomes valuable is when you combine that with the data that all of these companies are observing about you. When you put those two things together and you can decide who can have that, that's going to have a huge effect on the economy, but it'll also put us into a place where big public problems can actually be solved, like medical problems. Um, and I think that's going to be really neat in the future. It seems to me that right now, tech, the tech world has kind of been this wild, wild west of just, you know, we'll create all these great services and all these great products that you can use for free. But yet the trade-off is that you have to give them immense amounts of personal data. And we have our data basically all over <laughs> What what does the future of that look like? I mean, is it is it going to be something where companies, maybe if they're not paying you for for your data, they're going to like realize that once you've opted in, that there's ways that they need to just protect your privacy? Because I think that's another side of the equation too. Maybe if you if there's not a payment side of things, maybe there's going to be increased controls over like who has access to it. Right now, we we had Facebook. Facebook was in the news. Uh, and it was found out that they were giving access to, I think it was Microsoft and Google and some other companies. Uh, and of course, users didn't know about this, but they just kind of turned over the keys to other people. Is that going to be what's happening? Uh, this is a great question, really. And um, I guess I'd answer it two, three quick ways. The, the first is, when you think about privacy, you've asked exactly the right question. And I say this all the time, focusing on privacy means knowing and then being tell, telling your customers, and, and we built stuff to help even small and growing companies, know what you're collecting and observing, number one. What are you actually collecting and observing about people? And tell your customers. Tell them where they're storing and processing it, because that matters. And third, tell them who you're sharing it with and why. That builds incredible trust. It really does, especially if you disclose it honestly in a way that a human being that walks the earth can understand it. That's the key. And we focused on that, too. But the second thing is, if a company right now is not thinking about this, if you haven't appreciated the incredible drop in the market cap of all of these companies that haven't taken that really seriously, um, you're missing something. It's not only critical for any company that's trying to sell your product. You're going to be asked about this. You're going to be asked about how you're taking care of that data. And if you don't think about it, you're not going to close those deals right now. But the larger companies that are not putting a lot into the, you know, having people come and help them and technology to make sure you're doing it right, you're going to have a bet the company problem and you're going to regret it, really, because it's not only a fine or a penalty. It's that the minute people lose trust in you, it's really hard to win it back. It's really hard to win it back. And um, I really think this is one of those areas where if people don't take it seriously and focus on those things I just covered, those four critical things, and we say it, it's on our websites, just focus on those things. It's a real missed opportunity, and it's something that's going to come back to bite you. But you're also not going to close the deals right now as fast as you should. I think it's tricky because there's network effects that happen whenever you have uh, any kind of major technology used. Because it's not just you that uses it. It's other people that are part of the network. 
And it kind of uh, influences and forces you to use the technology because everybody else is, even if you may not agree with the way and the policies that the company is treating your data. And it seems like, you know, you sign your, <laughs> your, your, your life away a lot of times whenever you click that box and say, do you agree to the terms and conditions here? Most people don't read, you know, any, any of the laws. I, I can say it myself, I've never read any of that. But I have some semblance or idea of what they're actually doing with the data. Uh, they're making money off of it. And so uh, I, I think it's an interesting space to, to find out more about. So um, you mentioned that privacy is a, a, a human right. Talk to me about that philosophy, why privacy is a basic human right. You know, it's, I think a lot of countries and a lot of people are viewing it that way. And even it's, I mean, you, you could say privacy is a core value in the U.S. Constitution um, because of the number of ways in which the information about your, yourself and people can affect your life. I mean, you can have so many stories around the choices that people make with their information and how it changes the course of where they were going. And I think when you look at it that way, it's very easy to see why it's not only been recognized in Europe as a fundamental human right. India Supreme Court just recognized privacy as a fundamental human right in the last couple of years. And you're seeing that happen all over the world. So even where, uh, even as a result of people driving that, uh, countries are driving that. So if you think about it that way, so you're a business, there aren't many businesses that start out that don't have a vision of trying to do business someplace else in the world. So both as a human rights matter and as a business matter, it's just something you have to, you have to think about. For me, too, you know, for my kids, when you ask them some fundamental basic questions when they use almost anything, like, hey, do you know what you're sharing about this? Do you understand who else can know this stuff about you? You can tell it bothers them that they don't know. And I think that's one of the things that motivates me a fair amount. Mm -hmm. And on, on the way we've been building technology, we do ask that question that you just asked almost all the time. I ask, how does this make it better for a person walking the earth to just look at this and understand it more easily. And when you ask that question repeatedly, there's actually a lot you can do to enable that fundamental understanding. I'm happy to talk about that anytime. It sounds like trust should really be built into the user experience in a sense. Absolutely. You know, when I go to talk to big companies and little companies and you ask, I ask the question, hey, does trust matter to you to do business? Everybody says yes. And I often say, okay, now go to your website and type in the word privacy. And if what comes up looks like it was built in 1988, if it's just a big block of text, or 1998 when the internet was starting, um, if it just looks like a big block of text and it doesn't tell any story, you have lost an enormous opportunity to build trust with your own customers. And we've taken on the position of, okay, what you what you get out of the Wirewheel platform has got to be something that is usable to build trust with your companies, right, and your customers. So, like, for example, we, we did some research, and it takes – most people can't read more than 70 to maybe 270 words and understand them in a short amount of time out of a legal document. So we have really focused on trying to bring a user experience, a private, privacy user experience for our customers' customers 
where you look at it and you can get the basics of what you need to know in less than that number of words, right? Like what matters to you on those four key things. So anyway, I, I totally get what you're saying and yeah. I agree that's part of what we're focused on. So almost the length of the Gettysburg Address really for any kind of legal. <laughs> that's a, can I use yeah, that? Yeah, Is you that can right? use that, absolutely. Right. I appreciate it. Um, so now let's shift here and just talk about the regulations out there because you were negotiating uh, on behalf of the U.S. here whenever GDPR was just starting to get formulated. And, of course, that's a European regulation for those that are listening right now. Uh, it's the General Data Protection Regulation, and, and there's also the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is this called the, the CCPA. Um, now, these are complex regulations, right? So GDPR has 99 articles. Uh, CCPA has 21 sections. Of course, the California law doesn't go into place until 2020, but... Uh, we've got Google already being fined or seen that they violated the, the, the European law, the GDPR. What's going to happen to some of these tech companies that are not prepared for uh, a lot of these major regulations right now? Like, what, How do they respond to this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think w- the first on understanding is to simplify to what are the major things you need to do. And that's a lot of what we've tackled and where to go next and how to do it in a way that your customers can understand it. What I see happening to not only big companies but smaller companies that don't start getting this right, it'll start with some fines, as you've seen, or maybe some legal consequences. But I think the companies – almost nobody that I'm working with is solely – or that I even see is solely worried about, you know, a fine or and not to minimize it, but or some regulatory or legal consequence. What they worry about is being, you know, in the paper as not being a responsible custodian of data that their customers trusted them with. You know, can you ask the question of yourself, am I doing the right thing with this stuff that my customers trust me with. And if you feel like you're doing the right thing and you know the basics, then you can go to sleep at night. You can feel like you're building your company the right way. If you start to lose track of that, if you start to lose track of where the data is and what you're collecting and who it's being shared with, you should start losing sleep over it. And um, that's that's really why why we've been focused in this way is just focus on the things that actually are critical to you selling your product and focus on the things that actually matter in terms of building trust. Because if you don't do it, forget about the regulatory funds, which are going to be significant. As I said, it's about the trust with your customers. It's really hard to build, and it's super hard to get back. I wonder if the GDPR is going to serve as a model for the U.S. Do you think that that's going to be kind of the basis if the U.S. starts to start you know, regulating you know, some, of these, some of these privacy issues more? Or is, is the U.S. going to change around, you know, the law somehow to kind of benefit the corporations? I I think, uh, you know, it's funny, this becomes a little circular. So a lot of folks that look at GDPR realize that it it itself is in some ways modeled on an earlier version of European law, which in some ways folks view as modeled on U.S. law. There's a thing Mm -hmm. called the FIPS, Mm -hmm. which are the fundamental privacy uh, principles that have been in place since the 1970s. And the basic principles that you see popping up all over the world around privacy, you can tie back to the FIPS, which is a U.S. set of concepts. I, I'll answer your question. That's not the Federal Information Processing Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of those basic principles are carrying all over the world. But your mm-hmm. point is a really, really important point, which is without U.S. involvement in this process and having something that the federal government or other leaders in the U.S., you know, are behind, 
there's really only one set of standards that really will start to dominate the world. And that's, I think, why it's so important where you have the California Consumer Privacy Act and, you know, what uh, Alistair McTaggart really was behind here. And, you know, you've seen, I said, India is passing its own version of its privacy law. And Singapore has its own version. And South Korea is passing its own version. In some ways, when it comes to data, if you have nothing but totally, uh, you know, balkanized versions of this, it becomes very hard for data to move around the world. So I think you need some U.S. leadership to come up or it will, I think, default to something like GDPR. And I think when it comes to the U.S., it's almost certainly to be modified in a bunch of ways because there are some things in GDPR that are just not kind of the way we do, you know, a lot of things in the U.S. For example, it's pretty prescriptive in a lot of ways that U.S. law often isn't. We tend to pass more principle-based or a little bit higher you know, um, less down in the weeds uh, fundamentally. So I think if something like that comes to the U.S., it'll be different in some ways. But I would love to have the U.S. to be part of the conversation soon. Now, your software at Wirewheel is available on AWS's marketplace, Amazon Web Services marketplace, as a pay-as-you-go option. Uh, Now, the platform integrates with cloud providers such as Google and AWS and Azure. Now, cloud technologies are becoming the norm. How secure is the cloud really? Uh, you, you Again, this is a great question. So one of the things we have done is because we want to help not only big companies, which are important, and we also want to make some of technology really available for growing companies as they go. A lot of the companies we saw are launched on AWS, for example. So you can plug us in almost like antivirus protection for privacy on AWS. You can buy us right in the marketplace, and we go and we start monitoring your environment. And what we've seen is that when you launch in the cloud on any of these platforms, it's actually easier to do the four things that I told you. You know, what data are you collecting and observing? Where is it being stored? Where is it being processed? And who are you sharing it with? All of those things are easier in the cloud than if you have to go around your company and like search for where it is and what you collected. It just becomes easier. When you ask the question, well, is the cloud more secure? Every cloud platform has a bit of a shared responsibility model. So they take care of their infrastructure, and then whatever you launch on the cloud is your responsibility. And our goal is to give a really great, easily-to-integrate model that if you're launched in the cloud, you can plug in Wirewheel, and we take care of a lot of the privacy requirements for you. I will say one last thing, which is, In privacy, it's a little different than, say, cybersecurity. So cybersecurity is often about breaches, and there's a little bit – you can automate a lot of that. In privacy, when you focus on whether you're doing the right thing with data, it fundamentally takes people to make that judgment. It takes people to protect privacy. So we have really taken the tactic of plug into the environments like AWS, make it easier to bring that information up to some uh, some human being and then put the person into the position, either the privacy professionals or somebody else at the company, to make that judgment. And um, that's really the way we do it in the cloud. Now, you're an open data advocate. Talk to me about your history working on open data projects with the government and, and why you think that's the best way to go forward. Open data, uh, you know, I know a lot of this has, I think, stalled you know, in the last couple of years, some of the public open data movement, there was a pretty fundamental set of investments in the last administration around open data. But if you responsibly use government information, 
and I mean that responsibly, like really make sure you're not allowing re-identification of people's data, for example, and that you're using it in a way that was consistent with the way people gave it to the government. But if you take government data because of the nature of some of the data that's collected and you combine it with some other data sets, you can't believe the things you can do in terms of enabling um, folks around the world to do some really special things. I, I used to call it data equality. You know, you want to enable folks who don't have access to data to re really be able to do other things. So let me give you some examples. We, we took some big government data sets. We made them available through APIs. And then we went to a big data science community. By the way, these exist. I didn't even know they existed, but they do. Groups of data scientists that are just willing to participate in interesting questions. And all we did was we made matches between nonprofits and charities and the data scientists who then had access to the data. And they could help nonprofits answer all kinds of questions about their own, you know, um, users and members, put them into a position where they could advocate for themselves better. We were able to go to medical organizations who had folks who were just diagnosed with a disease and just imagine you were, you're just diagnosed with cancer. Folks often want to know, well, what is it about me and my history and my demographics? And how do I compare with folks who have just been diagnosed with cancer? You know, like, is there a path out and what can you know about me? And you would be amazed at the number of companies that will just donate time to build a way that human beings can actually do those kinds of searches on public data sets if you just highlight the problem. So... You know, and we saw this in pharmaceutical development and medical issues, environmental. If you open up a public data set and you say, we want to save this duck, people will go and do all kinds of machine learning against the images to figure out how can you save the duck? It's amazing. So <laughs> I think if you can do it responsibly and you can enable a community to come and help and look at those kinds of sets, the number of different problems we might be able to advance in healthcare environment. Uh, children's health um, are amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you're now hearing that people say data is like the new oil, and, and we need to learn how to you know extract it, refine it, find ways to work with it. And you're seeing a lot more professionals start to turn into ways to to work with data and and, and use that in their industries, whether it's nonprofit or the private sector. Um, let's uh let's just talk about that for for a moment. Why has everything shifted to data? Uh, why is that like the number one resource right now that we're looking for? Corporations, governments, uh, nonprofits, et cetera. Uh, you know, I think I, you will almost always hear me say responsible use. I think, again, the use of the data, in fact, you should always ask, why did I collect it? What do the people who I collected it from think I was going to do with it? And am I being fair to them? But once you do that, and if you feel like you've been fair and you can use it for some of these things, the way I would say it is you can see pretty quickly value in a bunch of both public ways and even on private companies, like figuring out ways to get more revenue out of something that you weren't even thinking of as the reason you got into business. I mean, there's a lot of companies where they went into business for one purpose. Suddenly they were collecting huge amounts of information and they realized that you can add, as long as you did it responsibly and you weren't affecting personal information, for example, there's a huge other problem you can solve. And I think that's where you get the analogy to oil, mm -hmm. you know, that you might've bought a plot of land in the middle of nowhere. You didn't even know there was oil there and suddenly you're rich. Right. And I think um, where if companies and entities and others 
look at the data they have and start to brainstorm with data scientists who can do some incredible things and always ask the question, am I being responsible with it? Am I doing the right thing? Once you say yes and you know where that guardrail is, there are some incredible both monetization opportunities, you know, to do something and get more money, but also public problems you can solve in ways that you never really thought of. But it does take talent to do that. Yeah. And I think for entrepreneurs out there that are listening, this is obviously a great opportunity for you to tap into some of these data sources and find out ways that you can innovate and create around the information that you've got here. Um, so let's just talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. So, um, you know, you've worked in the legal industry and you worked for government. Talk to me about your personal path as an entrepreneur. Did you see yourself starting your own company at one time in your in your life? I always wanted to do it. I always wanted to do it. And I got very lucky in my career working in different industries. I've served, for example, in all three branches of got the federal government. I worked uh, – I started when I was a kid as an investigator for the Public Defender Service. Uh, when I was at Arnold & Porter, I worked at a law firm that was incredibly committed to public service. So, A, they supported me when I went in and out of the government. But I got to start uh, legal clinics helping folks who couldn't afford Arnold & Porter – one year I spent, you know, myself and you know, like a thousand hours, that's a lot of time, on free legal services. So I got a chance to give back in a lot of different ways. Um, but when I was – when I saw the light on this one where you could see how massive the problem it was, how significant an issue it is for virtually every company, um, I knew that there there was really a chance to do something special and that our mission could be so – uh, supportive to help companies become better caretakers of sort of digital footprints, right? To become a better caretaker of it. And then ultimately to put people back in control of their data. And that I just couldn't get out of my head. Um, as I said, I got lucky in the sense that I got to know Amal initially. And, you know, he's just a real deep leader on the big data front. And between him and Chris and Ed and some of our technical team, we started to get a really interesting approach. And then we spent a lot of time going to companies directly and listening on what their problems were. And you can start to see the same problems over and over. And uh, we started with some phenomenal companies really jumping in to be our early customers. So for example, Under Armour and Blackboard have been two big customers of ours who've been really committed to privacy and uh, privacy and data protection and have been you know, real supporters along the way. So between the investment community here in D.C. that I identified some phenomenal technical talent and then really customers along the way, um, you know, it, it, it seemed like, um, you know, something that we've been very lucky on. And don't get me wrong, you know, the enterprise entrepreneur journey, people describe as just, you know, sort of a single uphill, but it's really, it's really <laughs> like any given day, mm -hmm. you have a lot of ups and downs and, um, you know, if you build trust with folks and you focus on values and you stay true to who you are, you know, I think there's a lot you can make your way through as a team, you know, even yeah. through the tough times. Yeah, that's great. So uh, as an entrepreneur, what's the best advice that you've ever received and what's the worst? Um, best advice um, was to listen to listen. Honestly, it was probably as simple as listen. Listen to the customers listen to your team, uh, listen to your investors, listen to your prospective investors, just listen. Because if you listen and you hear the same thing a lot, even if it's not the thing you're focused on, 
you often go the right direction. And it's hard to listen when you have a view. You know, you, you come in with a theory. That's been a hugely valuable thing. Um, the least valuable, <laughs> um, the least valuable thing, man. Um, you know, I think a little bit of the feedback you get, maybe I would put in this thing where you get feedback about things going great and things going, you know, that you feel, uh, maybe praise, you know, I think, I think my view is we're always going to feel like we're at the starting line. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I view it at every day. My job is to just drive us and move us forward. And I, uh, I really appreciate when we get support and people are excited about what we do, but I probably don't put too much in that because my view is we're always at the starting line. Uh, so what advice do you have for future entrepreneurs that are listening out there? Um, it's, the easiest one is if you're going to go for it, just don't give up. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of it is about failure and understanding that that's part of the game, that you're going to have a lot of down days. And uh, I think if you really believe in your vision, you're going to fail almost without a doubt. And it's a matter of never give up. Great. Well, that's words of advice from Justin and Tony Pillay. He is the CEO and founder of Wirewheel here in Arlington, Virginia. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks again, George. Really appreciate it. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.